Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So nice to see everybody back. (laughs) I have to share share with you something funny, or at least to me it's funny. (laughs) So most of the time, most of the time when I'm doing guided, guided meditation, or at least in charge of the bell, there's like a part of you that doesn't fully go into the meditation, you know, because you don't want to get lost. But when I, I was so relaxed that when I started to go into meta, I forgot that that's what we were doing. So I started falling back into meditation and I, my, and I started, then the wandering mind came in and I was like, where am I? It's like, oh, I'm in front of the room. Wait a second. I totally just, I don't know where I was. I was elsewhere for like three minutes. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in some other space here. Anyway. <sighs> so my friends, the last few weeks we've had a couple different topics and I thought I would kind of bookend them today. A couple weeks ago we started talking about just Buddhism, spirituality, religion, what is Buddhism, and then... On the back ends of that, I think last week we talked about some of the differences between the Dharma and therapy and how knowing some of those differences can be helpful as we move through our practice. And last week, someone had mentioned uh, the term spiritual bypass, which is a pretty common, I guess you could say. In Western Buddhism, you hear it quite a bit. And so we hear it quite a bit in both psychology and the Dharma. And it's kind of a nice little word to use to be able to explore those moments when we are just slightly off track in our practice and aren't aware of it. Well, we could be a little aware of it, but sometimes we're definitely not aware of it. And someone had mentioned it last week, so I thought I would talk about spiritual bypass tonight because it's something that goes really in tandem with talking about the Dharma and therapy and spiritual growth. And uh, I think it just can be helpful as a, a catchphrase to talk about some of our unconscious ways that we inadvertently sidestep emotions that we don't like or experiences that we don't want to touch down on when we're actually doing our practice. And spiritual bypass is just a nice little word that that kind of sums up that experience. So I'll talk a little bit about that today. And I think the easiest way to talk about it is just to give examples. And there's a bunch of different examples. So I wrote down a few that are pretty common in spiritual communities. In my experience, uh, my own spiritual bypass, and just how we might experience it in general, and how it can help us to basically come out of it and return to being a little bit more willing to touch down on some of those negative emotions or experiences that we might be tiptoeing around a little bit in our practice. I wanted to give props to John Wellwood, who was a psychologist who coined the phrase. I believe it was the early 80s, and uh, he was a big psychologist and well-known therapist in the transpersonal psychology world, and he was a teacher at the 
yeah, study, uh, integral studies in San Francisco where transpersonal psychology was a big curriculum. And he was also uh, one of the editors, I believe, in the transpersonal psychology journal or magazine that was big back then. Yes, so remember last week when we were talking about personal growth, which is like that psychological growth and healing where we get that sense of self that's kind of confident sometimes, <laughs> confident and, and solid and stable, and then the transpersonal experience, which is kind of letting that self go. Transpersonal psychology is essentially the study of meditation experiences and experiences beyond ego. So instead of that early stuff that you do in therapy, transpersonal psychology is like existential psychology and ego psychology. And, but mostly it, it's actually focused on spiritual experiences and transcendental experiences and the exploration of that part of the human spectrum of experience. So there was like the pre-personal and then the transpersonal. So, or sorry, pre-personal, personal, transpersonal. So pre-personal before we're developing our sense of I as we're kids and we're trying to and then the personal, where we're in that middle stage, where we're like, oh, this is who I am. And then the transpersonal, which is, how do I let all this stuff go, right? So there's that kind of spectrum of experience. So transpersonal focuses on this other developmental side of the human experience. It's a good question. Uh, so he wrote some books and was known for having coined this phrase, spiritual bypass, because he was a Buddhist and involved in Buddhist communities and noticed this phenomenon in himself as a practitioner, and he noticed in others and noticed it in spiritual communities, and it wasn't something that was talked about. We didn't have a language to talk about what he was seeing, and now that's why I like to talk about it, because it gives you this word, essentially, to uh, at least label some of these experiences. What he noticed was that, particularly in long-term meditators, people who had been meditating for quite a while, that most of us, at some point, have some wounds or experiences that come up inside of our practice that we would prefer to avoid. <laughs> right? So in the same way that we avoid things out in the world, there are things that come up in practice that we, are just, we just don't really want to deal with, and we tend to bypass them. We try to sidestep them and keep going on the path without having to really deal with them, without having to really face them, and without having to really bring mindfulness in direct contact with the experience of whatever it is inside that we're kind of pushing away from. And so he noticed that students who've been meditating for, for years and years often were bypassing something. There was something inside that they had danced around for quite some time, and it was starting to sort of, for lack of a better word, sort of leak out in different ways and cause harm to themselves or harm to others. So the spiritual bypass was this noticing of like, wow, we could be meditating for quite a bit, but there might be some things that we're just kind of ignoring either way, like mindfulness isn't touching and we have to kind of be aware that we may have these blind spots in our experience. And so this could range from just avoiding certain things to denying that something needs to be worked on. We're all real good at that. Humans have this great capacity to be in denial. And then there's this other one that he noticed, which I think is even more interesting, which is believing that certain wounds have been healed or that we've done the work and kind of moving on, like, okay, I've taken care of that. And then we kind of move on and it's kind of actually stuck in a drawer somewhere. And we just kind of have this sense that we've, we've kind of dealt with that part of ourselves and now we can go on to something else. But it's still there sleeping or napping, if you will. And at some point it comes back up because we've mistaken the work to be done and it's still not done. 
So he noticed this in meditators who've been meditating a while, that oftentimes there's something that we have that we're kind of dancing around. The way I like to look at it, for some reason, whenever I think of spiritual bypass, I think of um, The Hobbit. So I think of the... So whether it's the movie or the book, there's the scene or part of the book where, uh, I think it's Bilbo, right, is in the dragon's lair. He's in the cave, and the dragon is sleeping, and the dragon has been hoarding treasure for whatever, years and years and years. And he's going in the cave, and he's tiptoeing around to the dragon because he doesn't want to wake the dragon. And he's looking for some kind of jewel, I believe, in the story. That's kind of what spiritual bypass is. Spiritual bypass is when we go into the well of suffering and sometimes we tiptoe around a certain creature and we try to leave with the jewels and hope the dragon doesn't wake up. And then if we can get out, we think, I've done the work. And then the dragon wakes up and then there's harm that's done in some form or another. So when I think of spiritual bypass, I always think of the hobbit in the, in the cave trying to grab the jewels without waking up the dragon. And so spiritual bypass is like that. We tiptoe around something because we don't want to make contact with it. And we hope we can still get some benefit without having to wake up the beast, so to speak, whatever that might be for each of us, right? We all have something that we tend to tiptoe around. But the important thing is, is that in the Dharma, we, we have the, dra- the dragon's got to wake up. Like we've got to be in there and establish a new relationship with the dragon. We have to go inside and bring mindfulness to the suffering and feel it deeply and to be able to accept it and acknowledge it and ultimately heal from it, right? Transcend it. But we can't do it by tiptoeing around it. So spiritual bypass is just essentially, it's an aversion, right? It's a real strong aversion that we have to something that we tend to push away and hope that it doesn't wake up. And when it does, it can cause some problems for ourselves. So that's really what spiritual bypass is. It's the tiptoeing around something that we don't want to make contact with. And the other part of it is that because we keep it hidden, it tends to wake up when we're not expecting it and we end up saying something to somebody or hurting ourselves in some way. I'm sure you've all had some experience where, I mean, I think a real casual way of looking at it would be when we, let's say we're having a bad day at work and someone hurt us in some way and we're angry and we're pissed off or feeling you know, disrespected or unheard in some way, and we don't address the issue. We just kind of push it down and go back to work, and then we go home, and then something happens, and the next thing you know, we're snippy at somebody or like letting it out somewhere else because we just tiptoed around it, and we did not make contact with the heart, with ever whatever that was, and so now someone else is the bearer of that experience, and so part of spiritual bypass, the reason we explore it is to remind ourselves that If we repress something and we don't allow awareness to touch some kind of suffering, at some point it's going to come out some other way, and usually it's in relationships with other people, right? We usually end up snipping at somebody or judging somebody or hurting somebody in some way because it's coming out and we're not aware that that's happening. And the other part of this is, I'll give you an example of the idea that we think work has been done. So... A few weeks ago, this happened just like this. This is how it happened. I, I was talking to a friend, and I was kind of celebrating. I was saying, so I've had this relationship in my life that I've had this resentment and anger towards this person, and 
I finally like dealt with it and I feel like comfortable and I feel free and I, I feel like I'm really like I'm done with it and I'm ready to move on. And I swear like two days later I got triggered and all this resentment came up and all this anger came up. And I was like, okay, back to work. It's not, I still have some attachment and clinging in this thing. Now, that's kind of the normal type of spiritual bypass. Like we all are bypassing all the time. It's not like there's the good meditators and then the ones that engage in spiritual bypass. That's not how this works we're always tiptoeing in some way around something. And so when we become aware of it, then we just get back to work, right? Oh, this woke up. Let's see what we need to do, make contact with it and, and go through our, you know, Vipassana with whatever that circumstance is. But it's just one of those things we need to keep an eye on. So I'll give you some examples of um, the way that spiritual bypass can manifest in communities in different ways. Some of these you'll recognize, maybe not, just depends on what your experience is in sanghas or uh, in your own life. So I've got a few that are uh, sort of community-oriented that you kind of see um, in spiritual communities that are pretty common. So one of the things that we can see happen with spiritual practice is that we make this distinction between kind of the absolute spiritual domain or realm of our life and the relative, practical, everyday part of our life. And we create this kind of dichotomy or this duality where spiritual things are good and non-spiritual things are bad. And we create this kind of distinction in ourselves. And this is a kind of spiritual bypass because what it ends up doing oftentimes is we can be very dismissive of the real-life practical human experiences as being mundane and uninteresting and not worthy of engaging and the spiritual stuff oh this is the great the, you know this is the great stuff so meditating on the cushion that's the spiritual practice but you know taking out the garbage that's just you know we don't want to do anything there or we we separate life into the beautiful spiritual things and then the things that are not spiritual become like the bad things that we end up dismissing and this can happen when we start getting into spiritual practice where we want a particular spiritual experience which we attach ourselves to and say, ooh, this is good and fun, and the stuff that isn't is just now something I want to ignore or kind of push away. So we have to be careful as spiritual practitioners that we don't take the reality of the human experience and kind of be dismissive of it or demeaning towards it. Because in the Dharma in particular, the whole lived experience is part of the spiritual practice, right? cooking, eating, walking, sitting, standing, lying down, right? The whole experience of what it is to be human is part of the awakening. So we don't dismiss and compartmentalize different parts. We, it's all part of the game, right? It's all part of what we do with awareness. But it can be a way of elevating certain things into our life as being noble while putting things we don't like into a different category without even really realizing it in our head. And it can be also a way of judging others. And you know how the mind is. The mind loves to judge. Loves to judge other people, of course, and ourselves. It just loves to judge. It's, <laughs> it's really good at it. But we like to judge others so or judge other things. And so we might, as a practitioner, as we're moving through the Dharma, we get these small judgments of like, well, that's not spiritual. This is spiritual, but that over there is not spiritual. That, that person isn't really spiritual. This person over here is very spiritual. Like, we have to be careful about using spirituality as an attachment aversion crutch that we use to judge ourselves or judge others. 
Another way we do it is within ourselves, if we're doing something in our lives, we might get down on ourselves and say, well, that's not, that's not really spiritual. I'm not being very spiritual. And we create this kind of inner war that there's the good spiritual part and then the bad mundane part. So it's just something to keep an eye on internally and externally, where we kind of separate the, the spiritual's way up here, and then there's this other thing that isn't, and we kind of do this judgment that we do within ourselves. Another way we might see this, and this is, a, I think, really something that's probably more on the high end of uh, a spiritual bypass, and we don't notice it so much, is that sometimes we can identify things that we're doing as part of our spiritual practice, even though they might be harming ourselves or others in some way. And a couple ways that this shows up, for example, so equanimity is big in the Dharma, right? So we talk about acceptance. Something arises and we accept what that thing is. Now, let's say something arises from someone that we know and we're just not really in the mood to talk to them. And we might say, well, you just need to just be equanimous. Like, just be equanimous to that thing, right? Just be, just be okay with it. Like, it's arising, it's passing away. Don't worry about it. It's all going to be good. Sometimes we can use our spiritual practice to be dismissive of certain things if we don't really want to deal with it in the moment, right? It's not something we really want to touch on. We either don't want to be with this person or engage with this thing. So we might use kind of spiritual language or part of our practice to separate ourselves from it, right? To have a version, but it sounds like it's spiritual. So we kind of use the spiritual language to kind of make this distance. Another example might be one of the things we do in our practice is you'll hear the phrase, your emotions and your thoughts arise and pass away, and we just, we watch them like clouds, right? Like clouds in the sky. We don't attach ourselves to them. They just move here, they move there, so on and so forth. That's totally good practice. But there might be a situation where some thoughts are arising that you really need to take heed of. And if you don't like what those thoughts are, or if you're not interested yet to like touching them with your heart, you might say, oh, they're just like clouds and we'll just let them arise and pass away. And then they arise and pass away and go sleep somewhere until they come back and we have to deal with them. So again, when you look at spiritual bypass, it's the various ways that we kind of use the practice to dance around what's happening. So in some cases, you might be sitting on the cushion and watching your thoughts arise and pass away and seeing them like clouds is completely skillful. But there might be other times where you're actually doing that because you just don't want to have to deal, <laughs> deal with them. So we have to look and see what is the intention and the emotion in our heart when we're actually using our tools of practice so we know that we're really actually engaging in the Dharma and not using it to push ourselves away from things that we just don't want to experience or we're not ready to experience at the time, depending on what it is. Another couple examples, uh, we don't see this as much in the Dharma, but it is considered to be a type of a bypassing where something bad happens in our life or someone else's life and we describe it as being part of a larger spiritual plan. So something happens, someone has some grief or loss or something isn't going someone's way, or for us, something's not going our way, or we're hurt in some way, and the response is, well, I know it seems like it's hurtful and bad, but in the bigger picture, 
there's this cosmological plan and everything's just going according to plan and if you just got, get in touch with the spiritual part, it's, it'll be fine. Like, and there may be a plan, but the use of that in that context is very dismissive and we can dismiss the reality of our pain by saying, another way that you usually hear it is, everything's just happening for a reason. Like, it's fine. Like, everything happens for a reason. It might be happening for a reason. That could be true. But that might not be the most skillful thing to tell yourself or to tell someone else who just is hurting in some way. There might be a reason. But that, that's another example of spiritual bypass. When we use something that truly can be a spiritual orientation to the world, but we're using it for the opposite effect. And this is, can be really common in spiritual communities where someone might be experiencing some very painful emotions, they might be going through a really hard time, and they want to be able to share what they're going through, and it's hard for people to hear. So in a moment of spiritual bypass and that dismissive sort of energy, again, we might say, well, just, be, just be equanimous, just like bring some equanimity to it, everything will be fine. In those moments, what we're doing is we're skipping the heart step. The heart step, which is connecting deeply with the dukkha from the heart and really embracing and honoring the circumstance. And then we can talk about whatever the greater plan is or the equanimity or whatever the skillful means might be. But oftentimes in spiritual bypass, what we're bypassing is the heart connection. We're not ready to feel the vulnerability of the pain or the circumstance or really be with someone in their pain or their circumstance. So we use our spiritual language and practice to kind of distance ourselves from the experience rather than pulling the experience closer and embracing it with mindfulness and equanimity and things like that. So that's just some examples of how spiritual bypass can kind of happen in our experience. Another one that can be really common that I think is important is talking about the difference between our personal practice, like our individual on the cushion solo practice, if you will, and practice in community, being in Sangha where we come together and we get together and we have retreats or we do potlucks or we engage in some way more socially in the interconnected spiritual friendships. The Buddha numerous times in the Pali Suttas, praises Sangha as being the foundation for spiritual practice. And there's that famous quote where Ananda, of course, always making mistakes in the Buddha's presence, says something that's wrong, and the Buddha scolds him in order to make a teaching point for the rest of the room, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. But there's the famous quote where Ananda you know, says that the the Sangha and community is, you know, most of the path or half the path. And the Buddha's like, no, it's all of the path, Ananda. It's, all of, it's the whole of the path. And so uh, we have this quote that we often talk about where we say Sangha is the whole of the path, which is a beautiful, beautiful sentiment, of course, and certainly true in many, in many ways. That being said, it's important to know that the way we all come to community is different. The experience we have on the cushion when our eyes are closed and we're sitting and our hearts and minds are opening themselves up to themselves and sitting in a group and being in this kind of energy, these situations are very different for a lot of us, the way we experience being in a group or the way we experience being alone. What's important to know about spiritual bypass is that we can, our hearts and minds can hide 
We can hide inside of ourselves, but we can also hide inside of a community. There's two ways that the heart might dance around really touching on things that are hard for us. So we can go inside and hide a little bit, but we can also totally be hiding even when we're in plain sight inside of a a spiritual community. So I want to just talk about, it's a little abstract, I know, but I want to talk about this because it is important and we see this a lot in spiritual communities. So I'll give you the examples and hopefully that will make it clear. If we have a tendency to shy away for some reason from personal contact, where being in a group makes us feel slightly anxious. I mean, we all have some social anxiety, and so that's, I'm actually a pretty shy person. Being in, in, in a group makes we, we feel shy, we feel a little vulnerable, and so we don't bring our full heart to the experience of being in the group. We're kind of a little bit removed, a little bit back to protect ourselves because it's safer for us to be that way. And for those of us who are a little shy, maybe a little introverted, have some anxiety, we might be, have a tendency in a group to kind of pull back and not feel too connected. Now, when that's happening, usually what's happening is we are avoiding some vulnerability, totally natural. We are avoiding sharing our authenticity because maybe we fear that we're going to be judged or someone's going to make fun of us or we've had an experience in the past in groups that hasn't been very good. And so we're kind of tiptoeing. We don't really want to make the social connection because there's a little bit of resistance. There's a little bit of fear. There's a wound there that's underneath. And so we might be in the community, but we still might be separated from it. There's a part of ourselves that's hidden away that we're still not really allowing to make contact when we're in in a group. And that's totally a normal experience. I'm like, full disclosure, I'm that kind of person. (laughs) I am totally shy. Up here, I have the uh, privilege of being in a teacher role, so I can kind of use that to have a greater self-confidence. But as soon as that teacher role is put aside and I'm just in a group, I'm terribly insecure and shy. Like, I'm the last person to say anything. I don't want to share. I get embarrassed really easily. So this is kind of a different thing to be up here. This is a certain part of myself. But as soon as I'm in a group, I can feel that there's a little wall that comes up and I'm kind of hiding behind, <laughs> hiding behind the wall because I'm like, ah, I don't want to get hurt. And so I protect myself a little bit and I don't fully let myself be vulnerable. I try, but I can see that there is this part of myself that I kind of want to keep separate. The reason I bring that up is what it looks like as spiritual bypass is that sometimes we're not aware that that part of ourselves is still hiding out that we're in the group, and now sometimes we'll, we're aware of it, but sometimes we're not aware of it. We're in the group, and we're taking part, but we don't realize that there's a part of ourselves that's just not comfortable being vulnerable, connecting heart-to-heart to other people, being honest with ourselves, bringing our true self into the relationship with others. And so that's just something we keep an eye on as we grow in the Dharma, as we notice how we show up in community will be based on what kind of things that we're, all the baggage that we're bringing into the room. And so we just notice that. We just notice how that is and how we show up to make sure that that part of ourselves that's afraid, that part of ourselves that's shy and vulnerable and doesn't want to be hurt, that we work on that part, right? We strengthen that part of ourselves, that we, we use the community to have a safe place for ourselves. And we don't just put it to bed and keep ourselves just bundled up behind the wall. 
Now, again, full disclosure, I live behind that wall, and so I'm always telling myself, like, over the wall, Gregory, get out in front of the shyness, like, get out, make contact. But there was a time when I didn't realize kind of how far back from people I really was. I didn't realize that even though I was in the room with a group of people, there was a part of me that wasn't in the room. There was a part of me that was protected, that I didn't want out to be touched or to be seen. And now I go out of my way to bring that part out into the room when I'm with people in community and to be vulnerable and to be trusting. And that's the way I awaken that part of myself where for a long time I didn't really realize, oh wow, there's this other part of me that's not really here when I'm with people. So that's the spiritual bypass. Again, when we lock it away and we don't notice it, then we end up establishing relationships where only part of ourself is really involved in the connection with the other person. So it's just typical growth, but it's something to be aware of. Now, the flip side of that in community is where we can use community to fulfill emotional needs in an unhealthy way. So the opposite of what we just talked about of hiding out is when we immerse ourselves in a community and we overly socialize to distract ourselves from the fact that when we're alone, we don't like the thoughts and the feelings when we're by ourselves and not connected to others. So sometimes if we're afraid of being alone with ourselves on the cushion, in that interior space, we might go, we might overcompensate and do a lot of socializing and be in a lot of social activities so the mind doesn't have a chance to land in that inner space. And so in that case, we kind of use social engagement, again, to protect ourselves from touching down into that personal space. Many of us have a hard time in meditation being alone with ourselves. Some of the scariest places to be on the planet are inside of our own heads, right? Or inside of our own hearts. Sometimes that place is the place we do not want to be. So sometimes we protect ourselves by hiding in the community, by being social and being active, and not making the effort to take some time to ourselves, to do some solo practice, to be inside of our hearts without that connection. Now, of course, we feel lonely when we're not connected to folks. So that's not what I'm talking about. It's, we feel lonely, we want to be connected. That's the healthy connection, right? But sometimes it's not about the loneliness, it's about a type of self-preservation where we're not getting in there to see what happens when we're alone with our thoughts, when we're alone by ourselves in our practice. So again, the point is that we have our solo energy and our community energy, and we interact in our spiritual community, and we just want to ask ourselves, how are we showing up with ourselves? How are we showing up with each other? And just looking to see what's there, what is tucked away and what is being present. And we just want to make sure that it's okay to tuck things away for a while. Maybe now's not the right time to engage in a particular part of ourselves. Totally okay. But if we hide that part away for too long, then it's really starting to be repressed. It's really started to be buried underneath our mindfulness practice. And then it's going to come out when we don't, in some other way that we're not, we're not ready for. So, in a community, we still can hide, and in ourselves, we can still hide and not be aware that there's some kind of hiding there that's going on. So that's just another thing that happens in our relationship with each other in spiritual communities, um, which is just something to just notice in your own heart for the most part. Another example of this is 
there can be an unhealthy relationship between teachers and the community in the way that the teacher uses the community to meet their emotional needs. So I like to be liked. You know, when I do a Dharma talk, I want it to land for you guys, right? <laughs> it's just, just what it is. When I come in here, I'm like, oh, I hope they like it. So there's going to be a sense. I'm not enlightened. I have preferences. My preference is that you leave liking what happened here. <laughs> and I know that that's a preference. And when I get up here, there's a nervousness of like, I hope it goes well. I hope we all enjoy each other's company. I hope people come back. So that's there. I, that's there every time I come up here, right? And so it's important for myself as a teacher to know that there is an emotional relationship that we have with each other and that it can be totally healthy for me to want to be liked and to want this to go well. Now, if I have a wound where that's very strong and I don't feel liked or I don't feel lovable on the inside and I'm not in touch with that, I might go out of my way to really be liked by you, and that becomes the focus of our relationship rather than the Dharma, where I second the Dharma to my emotional needs with you as people, and I'm like, oh, the most important thing is that I leave feeling here feeling liked, and that becomes the interconnection of the community. So it's really common for teachers who get to be up in this privileged position to use the energy of the room to fulfill their unmet emotional needs, which is fine in the general level, but spiritual bypass is when the teacher is essentially kind of abusing that relationship to fix some kind of psychological wound and is sort of feeding off the community in a particular way. Another example might be for me to start saying, in the Sangha, we want more people to come. We want the community to grow. And I'm always excited to see this is such a great group of people. It's like, oh, look, 15 people came. Yay, that's wonderful. And so that's completely a normative kind of thing for me as a teacher to have this sense of like pride, like, oh, wow, a bunch of people showed up. This is great. Um, but if it starts being, wow, a bunch of people came, came aren't I special? <laughs> Now we have a different sangha. <laughs> Look at all these people that came to see me. Different sangha, right? So that is the, again, the spiritual bypass with the relationship between individual community can happen on the teacher side where there's something that, is, that needs to be healed, that needs to be worked through, that then we kind of use the community to work through that kind of thing. So these are things we're just aware of as spiritual practitioners that we can hide from ourselves sometimes. And we need to be on alert for those kind of blind spots in our practice. A couple other ones I'll just mention. A few of these are kind of ones that I mention quite a bit in uh, other Dharma talks. One is very common in the Dharma, where we basically use the idea of being present. Sometimes we refer to this as the be here now bypass, right? Oftentimes in our practice, the skillful thing is to be with what is so. That's like the main like prescription for so many things in the Dharma is like start with what is so and be with what is and can we accept the reality of the situation without judgment and without a desire to change it in any way. In and of itself, beautiful heart-mind quality, right? When that's rocking, things can be great when we can get into that space. However, we also have a past and we have a future. And 
if I'm looking at my past and there's something there that I don't like and don't want to see, I might tell myself, that's the past. Don't worry about it. Just be here now. What are you worrying about? That's over. You don't need to worry about that. It happened in the past. Just be present. That's bypass. Because what I'm doing is ignoring the reality of the past. I'm not bringing it in, touching it with my heart, accepting it, and seeing if there's something there that might be causing suffering. I'm just using the present moment to say, thinking about the past kind of sucks. I'm just going to be in the present moment. And so we build a practice around this heavy focus on present moment experience at the expense of ever bringing our past up into the present moment. And then that could be really devastating for our practice. So being present is great, but we have to remember that the present moment is in fact created by our inheritance from the past and how we're planning our future, how we're looking to do skillful actions. So if we just focus on the present without acknowledging the pains of the past, that can really send our practice sideways, right? The past is not a bad thing. It's still our inheritance to the present moment. So we have to be careful that we don't focus exclusively on the be here now moment at the expense of honoring what's happened or what's come before because that can be really uncomfortable. <laughs> One way this happens interpersonally, especially if two people are both practitioners. So maybe two people uh, had some kind of tiff or something in the past, and maybe it was hurtful. One person hurt the other, and one person wants some forgiveness or recompense from something that happened in the past. And of course, the person might say, why do we even need to bring that up? It's in the past. Let's just be in the present. It's all, the spirituality is here in the present. Why do I need to apologize for something that ha it's not even there? That's where we start moving into bypass, where we use the tools of the Dharma to just tiptoe around responsibility or tiptoe around something that's happened. That's really where bypass becomes an issue. And we're all capable of doing this in different ways, but that's how in spiritual traditions, particularly the Dharma, we tend to see it, where there's a hyper-focus on present moment awareness which means I don't have to apologize or be accountable for things that came before, and I can just tell people, I'm in the present. We're not going to go there. And we might need to go there. So that's one thing that, that we need to look at, look at, um, pay attention to. One other one is equanimity. And again, this is one of my faves, is misunderstanding equanimity. And then it becomes a form of, of bypassing in our practice. So one thing to always remind yourself about equanimity. If we look at equanimity as one of two things, in some ways equanimity is a balanced response to what is arising. We don't want too much craving and we don't want too much aversion, so we balance ourselves in equanimity. Equanimity can be this balance point in the practice. Equanimity is also considered the energy of acceptance, where we lean into something and we really accept it. We're like, okay, this is what's so... I can accept that this is the case. And we have that relaxation into acceptance. So that's, that's equanimity in the simplest form. That's great. Equanimity is awesome. The challenge with equanimity is that equanimity, being non-judgmental, can play this little trick on the mind. So we have to remember that in mindfulness, the first thing we're doing is bringing mindfulness to what we're experiencing and we're looking to see if there's any suffering. We're actually evaluating, is there positivity there? Is there no, what's going on here? 
Like, is there negativity? Is there positivity? Is it neutral? What's going on in this moment? We want to bring some equanimity to that circumstance, enough to where we can feel it and we can make the evaluation. But there's always a little evaluation in what's going on in our practice. It's not free from all evaluation. And what I mean by that is, if you lead with acceptance before you feel deeply with your heart and with mindfulness and evaluate whether something is harmful, you can lopside your practice into this way where you're accepting everything, whether it's bad or good or harmful or not. You're just like equanimity for everything, right? Like a, I'm going to buy everyone around and have equanimity. <laughs> We're all just going to drink equanimity. And no matter what happens, we're going to accept it. We have to remember in the Dharma that first noble truth, there is suffering. Second noble truth, there's a cause of suffering. Third noble truth, there's a way out of suffering. So we don't want to forget that part when we're bringing acceptance to the world. Like when we find that someone has harmed us or we've unconsciously or consciously done harm to someone else, the acceptance is not going to be just, oh, well, we just accept that and we move on. Like, yay, equanimity is doing so well. We, we do apply evaluation and valuation to what's going on to see if there's something there that we need to change. So sometimes what can happen with equanimity, if we see it as being acceptance, then we might think, oh, that person harmed me. Well, I guess I just need to be equanimous. I'll just be equanimous to it. That's the second step. The first step is to acknowledge the dukkha, acknowledge the harm, and remember that we have healthy boundaries in the Dharma. It's not just about accepting suffering and letting it roll over you. So sometimes people can get very passive in their practice and feel like they're supposed to accept everything that comes their way, even when someone's hurting them or not having good boundaries or in reverse. They believe that their behavior should just be accepted. So we have to remember that acceptance as a heart-mind quality, is in a family of qualities. It exists in mindfulness and wisdom and joy and compassion, specifically self-compassion. So we don't want to just only do acceptance. We want to make sure that we're also evaluating what's happening to us as we're moving through. Too much acceptance can create a sense of letting people harm us or harming others consciously or unconsciously if it's not tempered with the rest of the practice. And it can it can often be used as an excuse for harm, you know, in spiritual communities. If someone notices that there is some harm being done in a community, sometimes people are told, well, if you were more spiritual, you'd just, be accept you'd just accept. Like, where's your acceptance? And this can turn, you know, sanghas the bad way, um, so to speak. So we just notice equanimity as a really positive heart-mind quality that has to have friends around it to make sure that it isn't doing the opposite of what it's intended to do. It's not accepting everything carte blanche. It's looking at what's happening, noticing the positive, noticing the negative, accepting it so you can understand it, and then making changes if need be. It's not, it's not completely passive. And so we can, we can have that experience. And as a teacher, I have this privilege of you know, talking to, at this point, thousands of students. And it's not uncommon for students to come to me and say, I'm, I'm struggling in my practice because I have this relationship and it's so hurtful and I keep trying to bring equanimity to it and it's just not working. It's like, yeah, definitely, because equanimity is not the appropriate heart-mind quality that you bring first. You first want to bring mindfulness to notice the harm. Then we can talk about what we accept you know, in that situation. So we just need to know that 
we don't want to be too passive with our equanimity because it can get us discombobulated with that either inside or outside. And then one last one I'll just mention. Uh, This one's kind of funny, actually. Loving kindness as a form of bypass. Oh, we all love to be loved. It's nice to be loved, right? It's nice to have self-love. It's nice to, to have that feeling of loving others and to be loved by others. We just... It's great. We, human beings love to be loved. It, it's there for us to enjoy it. And loving kindness and compassion is such a big part of Buddhism, right? It's such a big, there's this wonderful heart-centeredness to what we do in this practice. And so loving kindness is something that we, we hear about almost the first day we get onto the cushion. You know, you can't be in any spiritual community, Dharma-related, without the heart being mentioned. How many times have I said heart already this evening, right? It's, it's there, it's everywhere, right? There's heartness in everything that we do in the Dharma. And that's what I, I mean, I love about the Dharma. But there are times when loving kindness can also be misused. It can be used to hide from ourselves or hide from others. And I'll explain uh, a couple ways that this can happen. One of the most common ways is when we reduce love to a panacea that heals all wounds. If we just were more loving, everything would just work itself out. All we need to do is be more loving. If we could just be more loving, everything would be fine. When we reduce the complexity of the human experience to a single panacea, we always know that there's going to be some problems somewhere along the way. Whenever we reduce reality down to like one little thing, we always know something eventually is going to go awry. And love is no different. And oftentimes when we're struggling with the enormity of the world or we're struggling with a relationship or something that's going on, it feels good just to fall back into this sense of if we could just be more loving, it, would, it will just work itself out if we could just be more loving. There's going to be some things that that's totally true with. If we just toss a little bit more love in there, sometimes things completely change, right, and open up. But there's times when a little bit more love and a lot more love actually don't do the healing that it needs to do. It's not always the right medicine for the right situation all the time. And we can rely too heavily on this kind of catchphrase of like love conquers all kind of attitude. And sometimes we'll stay in suffering for a really long time because we think, you know, I just need to be more loving. The challenge is if we keep trying to be more loving, it can put us in this sense of deficit where we feel, why aren't I loving enough? Why can't I just be more loving? And it can kind of flip back over and we can start getting down on ourselves because we think, well, if we had more love, it would solve the problem. I must not be loving enough because the problem's still there. Therefore, there's something wrong with me. Why can't I be more loving? That is a very common spiritual bypass in meditative communities where we praise love as being this thing but then sometimes it's not the right medicine or you need other ingredients to make the soup or it's not just love. Maybe you need, I don't know, garlic and sugar and other things to mix up. And we might get down on ourselves for not being loving enough. Like everyone else in the room is so loving. Why can't I be like that meditator over there who's all smiley in their sit and their heart must be just booming with compassion. And we look at someone else, it's like, oh, that person's so compassionate. Why can't I be that compassionate? So we have to be careful with how we use this idea of love in our practice. For the first, like, 10, I think I still do this. I do still do this, not as much, but in the first 10 years of practice, 
I would look at every other meditator and just say to myself, man, they just must be so loving and so equanimous, and I'm not loving and equanimous because I don't like this person or that person, and this thing happened today, and I didn't love that for sure. And I imagined everyone else was walking through their day with like all these Buddhists with the hearts, and, and I was like, man, I'm never going to get enlightened because I'm just cold and not loving enough to everybody. So I got myself in this kind of sort of rut of bypass where I, I actually thought like, oh, I guess I'm never going to be loving enough to be a meditator. I'm not going to be that compassionate Buddha on the cushion. And then someone pointed out, they're like, you know, you're pretty loving to people and pretty kind, but you're not really being, you know, loving towards yourself. You might want to take a look at that. And my whole world kind of like burst open because I realized that I was using the aspiration of love to kind of get down on myself. Like it wasn't, I was, re, I was doing spiritual bypass, which was using love as a form of self-criticism <laughs> rather than using it to connect to myself and get open-heartedness. So love is a slippery slope. And just to say this, when you, when you look at the, the Pali Suttas, there's plenty of times where the Buddha warns meditators to always, when you're getting into loving kindness and you're talking about love, to make sure that it's being done in a skillful way. How, <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand, but this is kind of what I say. How many people have ever been loved in a way that was hurtful and not... The other person thought that they were loving you in this great way, but your experience was like, I don't know, it doesn't feel very loving to me, right? Or someone thought that they were doing a kindness for you. To them, they were being kind, but your experience of their love was not necessarily an experience of positivity, the challenge with love is that it can slip into these other things that are not so skillful. And, you know, if you just let me love you in the way that I want to love you, the relationship would be fine. Love gets, can creep into the cracks and crevices of our baggage and some of our negativity and unskillful actions. And, you know, many of us maybe have experienced love as a form of control or a form of abuse or self-abuse, whatever. So we just need to remember that Loving kindness also, skillful and unskillful. We have to bring our skillfulness to it to make sure we're not using it or misusing it in a way that's harmful to ourselves and harmful to others. And it's just one of those things we need to keep an eye on. The other part of that for loving kindness is that, man, does loving kindness feel good when it gets really generated, when we gladden our heart and mind. And some of, for a lot of us as meditators, it can take a long time to have an experience of loving kindness that's actually pleasant. Sometimes it's just kind of, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free. It's totally fine for the practice. However, there are times when we may have this real strong sensation of love or compassion for other people. Our heart opens up and we do feel like, wow, connected to everyone in the room when we're meditating or whatever the case may be. And we can get very attached to that experience of open-heartedness. It can be very satisfying to feel love and feel loved and feel the oneness with those around us. We just need to keep an eye on that because that can form another layer of attachment because as our practice grows and our heart opens, which is what the practice does, we can have those experiences where, ooh, the meditation was so good because I felt so connected to everybody oh, now the meditation is bad because there wasn't any loving kindness in it. And we start creating this spiritual bypass where if there's loving kindness, the practice is good. And if there isn't a, a sense of loving kindness, then it's like something's gone wrong. So 
the human heart can get attached to anything. Even loving kindness can create unskillful attachment. So we have to be careful of how we get attached to that feeling of loving kindness and compassion that arises as well. So anything we can experience in our practice can be misused by the heart if it's wounded in some way and that mindfulness isn't brought to the experience. I think we'll end there for that. Thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. I want to make sure we leave with a sense that this spiritual bypass is something that we all engage in to some degree at different times in our practice. It's not some anomaly where we have to be like, oh my God, maybe I'm lost in the cave and I'm just tiptoeing around the dragon and now I don't know. And like, what if I'm spiritual bypassing? And we create this whole fear of doing that. Everyone else is not doing it, but I'm definitely doing it. We don't, it's a normal thing that the heart and mind do. It's just a form of aversion but it's really sneaky. It's a sneaky type of aversion because we're using the very practice to keep ourselves disconnected from the insight. So don't take it as something you need to be afraid of or to worry about. It's just as your practice grows, we keep an eye on those blind spots. It's something that we're all experiencing at some point or another. Thank you, my friends. Thanks for coming. I apologize for letting you out so late. I definitely went over. All right, see you next week. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com and click on donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.